Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, whether you're listening on TalkZone, my podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Our guest today, Franco A. Romero, holds two master's degrees from the University of Minnesota, one in public health policy, and is a co-founder and CEO of Nourish LLC, a leading edge formulator and distributor of superfood and super nutrient products. Franco is an author, clairvoyant, and spiritual coach. His book, The Closet Spiritualist, was inspired by a near-death experience at the early age of six months which left him with abilities he was unwilling to recognize until his awakening in 2010, when he was reintroduced to a collective consciousness known as Caleb, a voice which had been guiding him since he was a young boy. Franco is currently working on a second book titled The Modern Day Alchemist, which will look at our future from the perspective of God consciousness. Franco Romero, welcome to NDE Radio. Lee, I am thrilled to be here and humbled too. Thank you for having me. Oh, this is wonderful. And and your book is uh, has been such a treat to read. Thank you. Uh, Franco, you had an amazing NDE at six months old, along with a miraculous recovery, but you did not remember the circumstances until you were a teenager. Yes. But your mother confirmed the truth of your visions. So tell us what happened to you and your mom when you were six months old. Okay. Well, um, as you pointed out, I started, uh, I didn't have any recollection of this experience until my teenage years. And, and so that's kind of where I want to start. And then I'll go right into the NDE. Sure. When I was uh, in my mid teens, about 15, 16 years old, I was really starting to have these bizarre feelings of being disconnected with everything. And I couldn't make sense of it at all. I I just, that just nothing seemed to really gel or jive with, with who I was. Um, so I, I really, actually, this aspect of, of my story, I really haven't told too many people about, but it got so bad, as I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. It got so bad that one night I, I was in bed and I literally broke down. I was, I was crying because I didn't know where to go with all of this. I was incredibly confused. And um, so I I did my best to pray to something out there to ask for guidance because I didn't really know how to do that very well at the time. And um, I went to bed crying and I described this in, in my book a little bit that I went that I did go to bed crying. And what I what happened at that point was the beginning of about a year or two process where I had these reoccurring dreams or visions of this scene in the hospital where I was there in sort of this old fashioned looking hospital. And I saw in one room, I walked into this room, I knew what room to walk into. And I saw my mom and she was much older, I mean, much younger at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw my aunt, much younger, and a couple of other ladies were there. And they were crying, praying, and looking at this little baby that was in an incubator type of bed. And 
I wasn't really sure at first why or what I was looking at, but I was drawn to the baby that was in in the incubator and I could see that it was struggling. Um, And I just watched sort of this whole scene kind of play itself out where they, uh, my mom was asked by the doctor to, to, to come out and talk to him about my situation because apparently what I was told later was that I had come in that day. It was a clinic near our home, um, and it kind of served as both a clinic and a hospital. And, and this was in Bogota, Colombia. So um, things were a little bit different back in the 60s in terms of the, the, the medical capability that they that hospitals had there versus maybe here in, in the U.S. at the time. But I was vividly there. I mean, I, what I said, what I tell people is I was lucidly there. I mean, I could feel that I was in a dream, but I could also feel that, that I was in this reality, this particular reality where I was standing next to her as she was getting the news that what I was brought in, which they, which she thought was just simply because I was having trouble breathing and I might've had a cold. And so she wanted me to have the doctors take a look at me that, that what happened was that there was something going on with my lungs and my lungs were actually starting to collapse. Mm -hmm. Um, And that they didn't really know exactly what it was. You know, they were speculating, but what they did know was that things weren't looking good. So it didn't take very long in that discussion before they were, before the the reality of the situation became pretty clear. They, they had asked her if it would be all right to have the the priest, the chaplain of the hospital, come in and um, and and give me my last rites because they didn't really know whether I was going to make it through the night. And so I'm kind of watching all of this, and it became really obvious to me at that point that I was watching me in this scenario. But I was very little, a very little me. And I was watching this play acting itself out. And what was really astonishing at that point was is that I could feel my my mother's actual emotions at that time. And what was astonishing to me was, yes, she she broke down and she was crying. But there was this sense of incredible faith that she had in, in what was happening. And so... What I remember and what I recall is that she she literally kind of blanked out of the scene. She kind of separated herself from that moment. I could feel this as if I was almost like feeling her, as if I was myself in her. And um, and she instead of going back into the room, she left the hospital, uh, walked out, and about five blocks, four or five blocks away, there's there's a a church that she would go to, and when she got to the corner where she could see the church a block away. She got on her knees and she crawled to the church all this time, praying emphatically and crawled for a block up the stairs and into the church and up to the altar. And she got into such a meditative state that it was, it was so tranquil. It was, it was so beautiful to feel it because it was a sense of gratitude that she had. It wasn't this, this prayer of please, 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 you know, it was more of thank you, thank you, thank you. Hmm. Thank you. Thanking God. She was a very, very um, devout Catholic until she, till the day she died. Um, And she just, I, I really sensed that she didn't even really know the power of
love of the words that were coming through her because it was a sense of loving gratitude. And it was a gratitude of, of thanking God for the fact that, that she had had this short period of time with me. Um, even though it was only going to be six months, if that was it, she was so grateful for that. And um, I was extremely touched in this whole thing. I felt like, again, I felt like I was experiencing her emotions right then and there. Um, she prayed for a little bit. And in that time, she got visions. So she saw herself seeing me much later in life. I was a loving father and and a, and. A, a loving husband and a contributor and a good person, just a good human being. And she got to see all that. And I just thought that she, in, in that moment, I was just, I just appreciating that she could see that, 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 that somehow she got a vision of what it was like, even though she knew that she might not actually ever get to see that in, in physical reality. Right around that moment, everything changed in, in that in that church, the, the energy, I felt the energy completely change. It wasn't, it wasn't as heavy as it was before. It was incredibly light actually. And I felt that she could feel that. And it was as if she was at peace with whatever the outcome was. I remember seeing her get up and all this time I was like right behind her and she got up and she walked out of the church and she got to the hospital. And when she got there, she was expecting to hear, and, and this was the thing that always struck me too, is that she left the hospital knowing that, that when she got back, I could be dead by then. And, um, and yet she decided to use this, she went inward and decided to just use her profound faith to, to, uh, to ask for thanks. Um, so she came back and her, she was greeted by my aunt and, her, and what I later came to find out were the neighbors the neighbor women and um, and some of the doctors and nurses, and they were all crying. And, um, and she, well, she expected that they were going to tell her the bad news. And instead, she could see instantly that they were all full of smiles. And, and the doctors told her, I don't know what happened while you were gone. He, he meaning me, basically went from where his, all this, all my organs were, were, were shutting down. Uh, basically what you would see when one is basically ready to die. They said everything was shutting down and that it was just literally moments before I was supposed to die and everything just came back up. Um, the vitals came back up. Everything came back up. And within a, within a few hours, I was literally healthy again. I didn't leave the hospital for another day, but I was literally cured. And they said, we don't know what happened, but we do know this, whatever it was, it had to have been a miracle. And that was it. That was it. You know, like most doctors, they'll just say that kind of stuff and they'll accept it and they move on. And, and she just being who she is, my mom being a devout Catholic, and she just, gave, you know, chalked it up as a beautiful miracle of God. I mean, that's what she would later tell me and left it at that and moved on. So when I had this first dream, it was impactful. I mean, it was just incredibly impactful, but I didn't say anything to anybody. And I just kind of chalked it up as a really cool dream. And, and even though I would have it again in multiple, multiple dream sessions, I would have it again. But I just, you know, I do, I, I already at that time in my life would have multiple, you know, the same dream, reoccurring dreams over and over again. So I didn't really think twice about it. 
But then shortly thereafter, I started getting dreams that were even more lucid in some ways where I saw myself after I, I could I could sort of see myself right after that scene played itself out that I was back in that room and my mother wasn't really there. She was probably at the house at, at the uh, at the church at the time. And I was back in that scene and I could and I could see myself jumping out of that scene right into this light. And at first it was kind of a really peculiar dream because or brain dream or vision, because I remember that I was in this desert and I knew this desert. I wasn't unfamiliar with it. And when I looked down, there was these images at first it, the images were of, of a boy and, a, and, a, and an older man and they were looking at me um, as though they were asking something of me but it became really clear that they weren't looking at me they were looking through me and each time that I would look up um, I would see this this enormous orb it was it was beautiful it was it was so bright. It was so warm. I, 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 the, the thing that I remember so clearly thinking about was why isn't it hurting my eyes? That was the thing that just instantaneously, I just was like, this is so bright, but it's not hurting me. It's not hurting me at all. I could see and look at it all day long. And I would look down and, and, and the imagery of the man and the old boy would change in terms of one would become the other. And they were constantly looking at this light. When I turned back to look at the light again, um, I could see that it was moving toward me. And it was literally like as if it was about to engulf me. It got so big. And again, it didn't. And I kept just for whatever reason, I just kept telling myself, I, I don't know why it's not hurting my eyes, but it's so beautiful. I didn't want it to stop. And what I started to feel as it came close to me was that it went through me. You know how when you feel that sun and it's a nice warm day and you can feel the warmth, but and, and it's outside of you. Here, it was going th through me. It was literally going through each one of my cells. I could feel my cells. I could feel my whole beingness start to vibrate. And, and the, the crazy thing, and, and this is where it really got, in my opinion, really mystical, if you will, is that when it started vibrating, when I started vibrating with it, I didn't just feel myself vibrating. I didn't feel like, oh, my, my whole body vibrating. Somehow, someway, I found myself within the consciousness of each one of those cells. And I actually was feeling each cell as if it were me. And I didn't really, I mean, this is, it's like one of these movies where you just kind of go, how is that possible? How can I be feeling 50 trillion me's? as if I were just one me, but all experiencing this, this enormous rapture that I was going through. It was such a blissfulness. It was so incredible. That, you know, I, I've tried to explain to people what, there, what this feeling was because there's no word in any language here on this planet that describes the love and the beauty and the rapture and the ecstasy. And as I've said it, and I mean this in a very, very beautiful way, it felt like orgasmic. It was like 50 trillion cells were in a state of ecstasy. Right. And I felt each one as if I were them. 
And it was so real. It was so real. When I got into the light, when it was finally immersed into me, I saw that the light wasn't just this one huge glowing mass. It was actually this infinite number of lights, infinite number of light beings. And I knew them all. I, I didn't even understand how I could know them. I mean, there were so many, and yet I knew them. And I knew that they knew me, and I could feel their love. I could feel this sense of oneness, this, this sense of being home again. And it was so beautiful. There were a couple of them, I remember, that stood out and came towards me. And I could see the silhouette of their image. It wasn't as if they had a body, but I could feel and almost project it like as if it were some shape. And I knew them. I didn't see a face, but I knew them. They were, they were more than just all of these other beings. They were, they were like family to me. Like, like, like I had known them for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, way beyond this lifetime and way beyond this earth. And they knew me and they came towards me. And then the others, there were about four or five others. And they came around me and they hugged me. And that's when I really exploded. <laughs> I mean, that's when <laughs> that's when it all, I mean, game over because I was done. I became everything in that light. I saw everything. I knew everything. Everything that I could possibly imagine became, made sense to me at that moment. And I didn't want to go home because I, mean, I didn't want to go home to this physical home. Right. I wanted to stay there. That was home to me. I didn't want to leave. And I could feel feel their love. It was incredible. And all of a sudden, I felt this thing in my shoulder. And I still remember, it's as if I would, I mean, I could literally re recant this as if I was actually feeling it right now. It was this, like an arm, and it held me on my shoulder. And I knew right then and there, I just knew it. It was over. I knew I had to go back. There was Everything that was communicated to me, Lee, wasn't communicated in words. There was no audible here. It was all vibrational. And I knew exactly what they were thinking. I knew exactly where everything was. And I knew it was exactly time to go. And I didn't want to go. And all of a sudden, I felt thrusted back. And I went through this tunnel. And this tunnel was, I saw the orb leaving, getting further and further away, but this tunnel was so beautiful. It had colors yet I'd, I'd never seen in the physical world that I called my life here on earth. It was just amazing colors. And they were just streaming, streaming by me, streaming, streaming by me. And the next thing I knew, I just landed on top of my bed. And I was, I was sitting there in my bed. I woke up almost gasping for air mm -hmm. and I was sweating. And I looked around and I couldn't, I was disoriented, but I realized within a few seconds or so that I was back in my bed and I cried. I cried and I cried and I cried. And it was crying. It was a release of a lot of emotions, but, but the most, the, the biggest one was just that I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back to a place that I, it felt more to me like, home and made sense to me way more than the life that I was living at that time. Mm. And I would go on to have that, that vision and that, <clears throat> that dream multiple times. Um, and in fact, later on in life, I actually got to see what else happened 
while I was there. I got to go into a beautiful place. It was this this tower. It was so majestic. And I don't really share this part. In fact, I, I've never shared this part with people hmm. publicly, but I got to go into this incredibly majestic building that that looked like it went forever up into the sky. And when I walked in there, it was uh, it was a library. Mm-hmm. And I remember I didn't walk in. I floated in and I and I floated in and I looked around and I looked up and I looked down and I could see that this was sort of that library the, where all the books of life were held and or what others would call the Akashic Records. And this also, I would later come, come back and go there multiple times. I've been there many times now, but at the first time I did it, it was so incredible. It was so incredible to remember these things because I, I knew at that point that I was being shown things and snippets um, that I would remember these things later on. And I knew exactly where to go for my book. I knew I knew I could tell you right now it was in the third level, um, right hand side, two, two shelves from the top, five books. And I just knew it. And, and they showed me this amazing, amazing experience uh, of how of how I could experience my life not just this life but every life that i've had in fact every life that we all had because we're all connected as one i was shown everything and i talk about that a little bit in my book uh, about how they literally i remember opening up the book for the first time and there were no words and um and they told me they didn't they didn't say any there's no words they just told me in terms of psychically what to do and i knew instinctively to put my head into the book and the book would start to glow and everything that anything that was ever possible that you wanted to remember would be shown in that book it's just amazing it was just amazing <laughs> so those are the kind of experiences that i've had uh, yes throughout well about 10 years earlier than that when you were five years old just to let people know that your life has not been entirely blissful at all times no. You moved into uh, what you describe as a haunted house. It was a powerful <laughs> negative energy. Yeah, so tell us about that experience and, and your brother's experience, especially. Yeah, you know, uh, you're right, and I appreciate that you bring this up because I think this is really the most important piece of all of this. Um, it, it, you know, it's wonderful to talk about the NDE, but there's a lot of reasons why one has an NDE, and one of the things that happened in my life when I was about seven years old we moved into a house we were uh, somewhat nomadic at the time we moved a lot we went from place to place and uh, we lived at this house probably one of the longest stretches that we did which is ironic because i often refer to this experience in my life as the hauntings and it's about what you would think a haunting would be it's about the way that you would see it described in, in some movie. Um, it was um, it was a time in our lives where we all came to this house and there was a, a state of awareness or consciousness in our family of a lot of heaviness, of a lot of negativity. And it wasn't necessarily directed at any one of us. It was just that there, it was a pretty a heavy time in, in our families, in our family history, let's put it that way. And so, um, we went to this house. It had 
later on, I was told, and actually not even later, drowned, but it took me years to decipher it all, that that house had, before we even had gone and to live there, it had a negative presence, a heaviness. And so when we came in and we were at that time very influenced by things that were going on around us with movies that were, um, well, I'll just be really specific. You know, there were movies like The Exorcist and The Omen and other movies that were really inspiring people to place a lot of attention on that kind of negative energy. Um, I believe that a combination of things occurred at that moment in our lives where we created the perfect storm to bring that negative energy out and manifest it into the physical. And it was a doozy. It was a real doozy. I mean, it began one night with my brother, who was a few years older than me. He was really causing trouble, but he was just acting differently. And he woke up in the middle of the night and went out into the kitchen and our kitchen's connected to a back porch. And he saw this silhouette of a dark, heavy image with, it was a man he described it as. And, um, and that man was, was speaking to him, but wasn't quite speaking to him in words again. It was all kind of audible. I mean, it was all kind of psychic, you know, connection. And it, it had, it had these glowing red eyes is what he described it at. Yeah. And it asked him to come into the porch area with him. And well, my brother didn't want anything to do with that. And so he flipped out. He literally, he really flipped out as anybody would. Yes. And unlike these B-rated movies where the where the character runs into the scary room, he was like, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm running to my parents and uh, woke up the entire house uh everything was fine we my parents went into the porch there was nothing there but what happened as a result of that event was a series of events that would go on for at least four or five years um and it was everything there were there were there were uh moments of of possession that we that we experienced that i experienced it was mostly directed to my brother he acted out in ways that were uncharacteristic of not just him but any child he um, had a moment where he literally spoke in a vibrational tone that was very heavy it was a very very heavy it was like listening to an old man speaking um he had the strength supernatural strength enough to toss uh my father across the room who was a pretty tall man he was about six one and and about um, 220 pounds, and he just threw him like a rag doll. Um, so those were some of the imageries or the images that I remember from that experience. But we also had an exorcist come in and do an exorcism. We petitioned to the Roman Catholic Church. We had the whole nine yards, Lee. I mean, it was it was Hollywood right in our home. And yet throughout that whole experience, Throughout that whole experience, because my bed was closest to the attic stairs, which is where this kind of heaviness existed, I would always, every night without fail, I would hear the, this, just this heavy walking up the stairs. It was as clear as anything that you could imagine. And I knew that this entity was, was basically moving up and down the attic. And, um, and I would hear this voice. This voice always would just be there. It was a different sound and it was a beautiful sound. And it would always tell me, don't worry, don't worry. It won't hurt you. Your light shines too brightly. 
And I didn't need to hear anything else. It was like that voice became my closest friend, became my guardian angel, it became whatever. I, I mean, I knew that it wasn't there in my visual presence, but I could sense it. And so for years, I thought it was kind of like my imaginary friend, even though it didn't really feel like that. I really felt incredibly real. So um, so that really, really had an impact on my family. It really, as you could imagine, had a real big impact on my family. And for years, it took really the collective strength of my family to to kind of move to move beyond that experience and to live what they would hope to be a somewhat normal life when we moved on to our next uh, to our next home. Um, but that that was just something that for forever hung out there for us. And it really affected uh, my the, the view that my brother would eventually have. I, I love him dearly and he's a, a very good man, but it would change the way he would view the world in himself. And uh, it changed me in, in somewhat of a different direction. Well, you had a voice that was to your benefit. Yes. Tell us about that because that was the beginning of Caleb, wasn't it? It is. It took, again, a long time to understand this, but there was always this presence in, in my life that, and I will say this, I, I really, I feel very strongly, I'm, I'm supposed to be telling people this, that that voice is with us in every aspect of our lives. It's, it's what we remember as that sort of imaginary friend or that, that intuitive sense that was speaking to you or, or um, you know, just, just that, that voice in general. I mean, we all have it. We just unfortunately shut it out by the time we're seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, for sure. By the time we hit our teenage years, I didn't shut it out because of the circumstances. I needed it to survive. I needed it to get through this time in my life. And so I really hung on to this voice and this voice was, like I said, it felt very, very loving. It was, it was angelic and it always talked to me. I mean, I was always the kid who kind of got caught talking to myself all the time um, because it just was always there. But then, yeah, just like when I got to be 13 or so, for sure, by, by the time I got my early teenage years, I just, I just left that voice in the past because I was told that, like we all do, that that voice is not real it's imaginative which i find that to be ironic because your imagination is your link back to who you are and so um but i left it i left it away and i threw it away and i didn't reunite with it until much much later in my life and um and i do want to say something because i i was asked this question before uh, about the negative energy in in the house and and you could um, see if you haven't kind of figured it out i, I don't call it evil because what I was shown in, in when I crossed over is that there is no such thing as evil. There is negative energy. And we have the ability to create whatever we want to with that energy. We can create, we can take pure light and create it into a negative heavy energy and, and, and then demonize it for the purpose of our experience. But, but there, I, it, this took me a long time to understand this because at the time it felt very demonic and it felt very, I'll just use the word satanic and whatnot, but it wasn't. It was just a very heavy negative energy. energy. And once I understood that, it helped me in my future experiences 
to understand how to cope with it and appreciate it and give it things and let it go. And that's what I try to help people with in, in what I do in, in my in my counseling or coaching or teachings is to show them how to take that energy and create something beautiful out of it. So I just wanted, I felt it was important to share that because there's always a lot of confusion with that. Yes, especially with something as classic as possession. Oh, yeah. Well, let's fast forward now. I, I mean, there are many things we could talk about, but you had a, an experience, you, your wife, and your kids at the Phoenix airport that oh, was yeah. phenomenal. And perhaps you'd tell us about that. Okay. All right. Here we go. Buckle up. <laughs> so when I got into my late 20s, I was doing everything I could possibly do to live a quote unquote normal life. Okay. I had gotten married and we were starting a family a few years later and and um, everything kind of seemed Norman Rockwellish. You know what I mean? I mean, it was just it was just uh, it was just beautiful. You know, I mean, as much as it could be. And um, and then I went to Phoenix. Now, I'm not going to say that it was all beautiful in the sense that everything was just magnificent, but because I was still struggling with this with this imagery and all the stuff that had been going on throughout my life, I still had a lot of questions about it, but I had done a nice job of tucking it under the rug. And so I went to Phoenix for a business trip and I was going to be out there for a month. And we live in, in the balmy state of Minnesota, which, um, which right now is full of a lot of snow. And, um, and we um, we took our chances to get out of there because it was January and I, I took my wife and we had two children at the time. Our third, Sophia, wasn't born yet, but uh, our, our uh, oldest at the time, Logan, was about two years old. And, um, and my other one, Savannah, was, was still in her car seat. And uh, so you can picture this because it's it's whatever you, you see this all the time at airports. Um, I told my wife that I was going to go ahead and get a get the rental car because it would have been easier just to pick him up curbside. Um, what happened was that when I got to the curb area, I missed my entrance to pick them up where I was supposed to. So I had to kind of park on the other side with the terminal, with the terminal area where all the buses and stuff would actually pick up people. That was a good ways away from the exit where they were coming out, but I could see them as they were coming out. I yelled across to get their attention. And my wife, who was struggling, Charlene, um, who was struggling to, <clears throat> to just cope with one child in the car seat and the other one in her hand, she didn't see me. She didn't hear me, but Logan did. And uh, Logan decided he wanted to go and just cross the street, cross this three lane street where cars were, were coming in at a pretty good clip um, to, to greet me. And, um, and I knew instantly, I knew instantly that was not going to be good. I looked across and there, there were cars coming probably 30, 40, 50 feet away. And they were coming in, like I said, at a pretty decent speed. And he wasn't, aware of any of that and he started to run across the street and i felt pretty helpless i didn't know what to do the only thing i could think of at that moment was that i didn't do something anything he was going to die 
there was just no way. He was just too little and the cars were too big and they were going too fast. He was going to die. And so I, this is one of those moments where I suspended everything. Everything that I even knew I had in me was suspended. I, all I could think about, and it was really an odd feeling because I just knew instinctively to just pull some energy inside of me. It was like I pulled something in way deep, 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 deep inside. And then all of a sudden, just as I got to that point, I released it all outward and I screamed, no, I screamed. That was the only word I said. I just said, no. And as I did that, I was expecting maybe that he might stop or something, but I didn't expect what I saw next, which was that I saw the vibration of my no hitting everything around me. It was hitting the cars. It was hitting the buildings. It was hitting the people. The, I, I had a good vision of, of the mountains behind the airport that everything stopped. The airplane stopped moving. Every sound, the sound of everything stopped. It was dead silent. Everything stopped. And I was like, I didn't even have time to react to this because the next thing I knew within those few seconds that this happened, all of a sudden I found myself in the backseat of the car that was kind of leading all of these other cars. The one car that I knew was going to hit him. And I was sitting in the back seat, very I could see this so clearly. And I started, it was a young lady. And I started yelling, no. That's all I did was just that no. And she heard that vibration. She heard and felt the frequency of it because her and the passenger next to her, she slams the brakes. She hits herself on, on, the, on the wheel, mm. steering wheel. He literally almost hits himself uh, in the front and they could feel it. All of a sudden I leave that scene. I mean, this all happens in like three, four seconds. I leave that. I'm back in my body. Everything stopped. He comes running across the street. I grab him and everything starts up again. Everything starts up again. The noise comes back. The cars come back. The people are walking again. And the most bizarre thing about all of that, if that isn't all bizarre, is that nobody, not one person, not one single person came up to us and asked us if everything was okay. They didn't even recognize or acknowledge what had just happened. They just went on as if nothing had happened. I mean, literally as if nothing had happened. It was something out of a movie. And it, be, and it was the first time that I actually experienced what I would call the simulation of this reality, the digital, digitalness of it, because the way people behaved in that moment did not make sense to me. And that was the thing. This, I mean, all of this stuff was happening. And the fact that I was processing that, that he almost died really hit me. But what never left me that day, and I write about this in the book, what never left me that day was how surreal and unreal that experience was. It was the first time that I really started to get a glimpse of the simulation of what I call reality, of what we all call reality. And there was so much more after that. You write, uh, this incident opened your eyes to the holographic truth of our physical reality. That's the way it was, the yeah. holographic truth. of it. I had no idea that that's what it was doing at the time. But that imagery never left me. And it just kept growing and growing. And, beyond, and after that, 
it was game over. I mean, I could see the holographic reality. And then I was told about the holographic reality. And I write about it in the holographic reality. It it opened myself to all of that. And it was a startling, startling conclusion because I was that was not what I had been told about my world. No. Now, did Caleb's voice come through? It took you quite a while, actually, to finally decide that you were going to deeply involve yourself in this new understanding of the way things are. Yes, it, it did, because there's other parts in the book, which I won't get into for the, in the interest of time, but there were just events after events after events that kept reminding me of the holographic reality of our life. And I just couldn't cope with it anymore. It was, it was becoming so difficult to understand who I was, who I was within the context of what I was being told I was by the way that I was brought up by, and by the social, what I, what, what I describe as the social conditioning of, of, our, of my life, of all of our lives. And it just wasn't making sense anymore. And I literally hit a couple of really, really uh, deep moments, dark moments. I don't want to really call them dark because I don't want to give people that impression, but they were in a sense, they were just heavy moments of disconnection where I just didn't, nowhere to turn anymore. I couldn't talk to anybody. There was no internet at the time. I mean, there was a little bit of it, maybe, but there was nobody. No, there was no sense that this was happening to anyone else. I came to find out much later in life, and I, I'm just still realizing that this has been happening different ways to hundreds, thousands, if not millions of people in their own way. Um, but in my moment, it was my moment, and I couldn't deal with it anymore. There was a time where I felt like I couldn't continue. And I had a moment where I was at a, at a uh, mall here in town where I, where I was up at the, on the third floor of this mall. And I just remember easily thinking how easy it would have been to step away from all this. And so it was during those moments. And I remember one night really having hit hard, having it hit hard. And I just was crying. And I was just, I knew that that presence was in my life. And again, I want to stress this. This presence is in everybody's life. Everyone has this. You don't have to go through an NDE uh, to do it. And you certainly don't have to go through horrible times of depression or sadness, but it's there and it's waiting. And I called for it. I called for it. I remember I called for it. I got on my knees. I started crying. I said, I really need something. I could feel you. I've heard you in the past. I know you were there when you when I needed you the most in Phoenix and other places. I know you're there, but I need you to answer me now. And I went to bed and I thought, well, you know, whatever, I'll go to bed. And next morning I woke up and the first thing I remember was nothing happened. And I said, I, I was so upset because I knew that there was something there. And I started yelling out for it quietly in my head. And then it came, it came, I mean, it came and it, it presented itself and it showed me, it showed me everything. It started to show me everything. They started to talk to me and I had already been talking to myself, at least quietly again, in, um, before I would go to bed and all these other instances. And they just started to talk to me. There was so much they did. And if, beyond that was that it, it, it had this huge, massive awakening, I call it, where just I was starting to receive downloads. I started writing everything. They started showing me everything about anything. And so I would go down to the basement. I would write, 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 write. This is before I ever wrote a book. I just started writing. It was just writing for the sake of writing. Right. I didn't even know why I was writing. And I would stay in there for hours. But I knew, I knew at that moment that I had reestablished connection with them. And it never went away. It did for a brief period of time, only because they wanted me to experience things without 
me getting too wrapped up in my connection with them. But they always told me that they were always there. Had I really gotten bad again in terms of my struggles, they were they would have jumped in again and they would have helped me out. But yeah, they've been there ever since that day. And again, I want to stress that that's why I hear this from a lot of people that they get to the point where they just go so inwardly in and they just ask for divine guidance or something to show them that they're that they're being heard and seen. And a lot of them will come back and say, yeah, I, I did get my prayer answered or I did establish a connection with something and it's been there ever since. It, it's it's incredible because I've always been I've always told people they're there that higher sense of who you are, your connection with oneness, it's always there. It's always, you just have to believe. And sometimes the only time you'll believe it is when you hit rock bottom. And it doesn't matter when it is, just know that it's there. Your understanding, as I was going through the book of where things are at, is quite profound. One of the things that you wrote was, your body is simply the physical expression or manifestation of who you view yourself to be as consciousness which yes. harks back to that holographic image at the uh, Phoenix airport. Yeah, you know, and again, in the interest of time, because I, you and I could talk, you know, for hours, and we know that already because we have. Um, and in the interest of time, I will tell you that the big, one of the biggest things that I, that one has to go through is this, the, these stages of awareness. And it gets downplayed a lot. But in the book, in the book that you that that you read, The Closet Spiritualist, and the one that I'm writing now, it gets into this in much more intimate detail. Their awareness is a powerful, a powerful tool. It's it's one of what I what what Caleb described to me, and I wrote in the book, the 12 attributes. These are gifts. I, I they they call it the, the, the our spiritual armor. Okay. And when you use awareness to remember who you are, and this is something that requires you to go inside, not outside, um, you become aware that who you are is not your body, okay? We have been taught from day one to identify ourselves as this limited aspect of us, this physical aspect of our body. Now, that's all right to a certain extent because our body is an incredible and technological piece of machinery. I don't want to downplay that or 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 make it seem so dry in terms of calling it a machinery, but it's so incredible. But it is not who you are. It is not who you are. You are much greater that your infiniteness is so immense. It is absolutely the contradiction of what you think you are as this body. And so it took me a long time to realize that this body that I have is just a reflection of me believing that I am seeing a body. It is the free, what I always call is the first layer of my simulated reality, because your body is everything around you. It is everything. It is the room it is your home. It is the outside of your home. It is as far as you can see and beyond that. That is what your body really is. And I mean that not metaphorically, because all of that is hardwired into your consciousness. Because again, you are consciousness. I always tell people that awareness is the best way to describe this thing we call God, because energy aware of itself is consciousness. 
So if you could start looking at yourself and your body as just a reflection of who you are, and then you could start to understand why if you are feeling ill and you're having maladies, that you can understand that it's your body responding back to you in terms of the negativity that you're harboring, which is why once we do start to wake up to that reality, why Caleb calls this time in human history the age of miracles. Because when we start to wake up to the reality that we are controlling this body as an avatar, we can start to connect with it in ways that it can actually start to heal itself without doing anything other than having faith that you can. One thing in your book that I loved was the fact that what people call insane, hmm. <laughs> based on the outside circumstances of life, when you break the word down to in and sanity, if you look within yourself, yes. you, you begin to see the real truth of, oh. uh, of our existence. So uh, I'm telling you, you're, you're forcing me hard here to keep this all <laughs> down to a few minutes here, Lee. This is tough because one of the things that they've shown me is that this whole reality isn't just a simulation and that's it. Let's call it that and walk away from it. It's a game. It's a game that is meant to help you remember who you are, appreciate who you are as this divine being that you are, and ultimately to go beyond that and, exp and, and actually remember yourself and become that divine being, the controller of the game. It's a school okay, of awareness so that you can expand as, as part of this thing we call God, because God wants to expand. That's how it... That's how it enjoys itself, okay? So one of the things that they do in this game is that they throw these things called mind capsules out. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And they're in the words sometimes that we use. And so it's ironic because that's a great example. And it's one that really came early on to me that people would associate somebody who's insane as being crazy, right? I mean, like, completely delusional out of it. They're not connected with anything, which ironically is actually a good definition because you're not connected with the physical reality the way you think it is. But they showed me to break that word up and there's other words to break it up and go in sane, sane, the sanity, go within yourself to see who you are, the saneness. You are actually I in, in the most bizarre way you are insane. And that's exactly the way you should view yourself. If you could understand it in terms of going into your sanity, into your normalness or whatever that is. And it was like, oh man, you guys really like to play with words, don't you? But that's the way the mind capsules work. That's all the little, little synchronicities, all the little reminders that are happening all over the world by so many people in terms of clues to help you wake up. And speaking of mind capsules, in one of our extended discussions, we talked about why are there millions and millions of people in this world who have had near-death experiences? What is the reason for their being here? Why did they not just die? And were oh. they given a job to do when they came back from the place they visited? Oh, boy. And that made them as I recall, 
one of your mind capsules or millions of your mind capsules. (laughs) Tell us about how you interpret that latent energy of all those near-death experiences out there. Okay, so I've been asked multiple times recently why it's taken me so long to come out and talk about all of this. You know, why not? Why now um, versus whenever? And the simple answer would be why not? Or, you know, if not now, when? But here's what really kind of inspired me. Obviously, my NDE had a tremendous impact on me. And for the longest time, I really spent a lot of time just focusing and drilling down on the experience itself. And I was missing the mind capsule moments of that experience. I was too bogged down on the fact that I died, I crossed over, I saw the light, I was loved in a way that I couldn't even begin to imagine. I came back, all the things that you hear that NDEs talk about. And I've talked to many of them since I started coming out. And the thing that I was told as I was starting to remember is that there was so much more that people who had NDEs were supposed to be coming back with and sharing. Now, that was intentional that they came back and went through the same and are still going through the same process that I went through in terms of overanalyzing the experience itself and and making it more of a confusing matter than it had to be. Because they told me that in time, there would be more that they would say, even if they didn't know it at the time. When they came back, they all, most of them, I'm not saying all of them, but most of them would say, I knew I had to come back. I knew I had to come back. I didn't know why, but I knew I had to come back. And I had a feeling that it had to do with some, some unresolved matters, some unresolved business. And they immediately and, and rightfully assumed that it was some things that they still had to take care of at home, in their lives, their relationships, whatever it was. But what they didn't realize was that they, when they went into that experience, the energetic arrangement of what, what they call the, the, the divine DNA, the genetic expression of who we are as spiritual beings, not biological, but spiritual beings, was resequenced. It was recoded. It was reprogrammed, if that makes it easier. Mm-hmm. And what would happen when vibrations would come back, when they would come back and vibrations globally would start to rise as it's happening now. When I say vibrationally, I mean consciousness is starting to rise. Mm-hmm. Those programs, those codes, that resequencing would be re-triggered and they would remember what they really came back to talk about. And that was everything that I've been talking about, about the truth in terms of what we are, who we are, why we're here at this time in human history, in this time of their evolution. Why are we here now? Why are all of these NDEs experiencing this and coming back? They've seen way more than even what they remember, and they will remember and they will actually, and I've told this to some of them, and I've told this to other people, and I want to be really careful about this word because it often has connotations to it, but it is what it is. They will minister the truth, and they will know what it is, and they, and the people they talk to will resonate with that, and when they do that, they too will wake up, and it will become a global movement unlike anything that humanity's ever seen. That 
was the reason why I was told to come back and start to actually talk about this. That's why my time, if you will, wasn't ready yet until now. But that had to be a message I had to get to the NDE years. They came for a purpose that was so great. It was so, it was so massively great that soon, very soon, they would start to remember that and they won't be afraid to share it anymore. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to uh, plant a seed in the listeners' minds by reading a little paragraph from your book. And I would strongly encourage, I mean, I've often recommended books from guests who've been on the show, but this one is such a great collection of wisdom, of insight, of directions for how to get to where most everyone wants to be, who is, if they're listening to this show, they've, they're already, they've taken the first steps there. Let me read this. This is a quote from Caleb, the voices that you hear. Do you recall the analogy of being the actor, director, and producer of your play? Caleb asked, knowing full well that I would remember. The only difference here is that the in the world of oneness, there is no need to climb out of any screen to manipulate your reality. And why not, you might ask? Because you are the screen. You are reality. Everything exists inside of you. So there. So if that doesn't incite people to go out and get your book, I don't know what will. (laughs) (laughs) Franco, tell us a little about, you do some work as a counselor and clairvoyant. Talk a little about how you've been able to help people. Most of what I've been doing has been to help people. When people come to me, they they already know that they have answers to a lot of their questions. And and I simply work with them in a very short period of time uh, because I I tell them that that they're here to hear what they already know and be and then become it and then within about three or four months they're go- they're gone becoming a you know they're they started their ministry of whatever that might be of of whatever they of their version of the truth which is all the same um, I just work with them and I speak to their soul. I know that sounds a little odd, but I speak to their soul so that their soul can help remind the other aspect of their mind of who they truly are. And so we go through a lot of um, life learning experiences that they have gone through and and help them. I help them. And oftentimes I do this with more often than not. I do this with Caleb, where where we basically help them to remember why those things happened and show them that they were there as a way to help remember who we truly are, not to to fear those things. And as soon as they start to see reality, their reality, the way that they have been looking at it for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and let them go gradually, peacefully, beautifully, in almost a childlike way, simplify it so they don't have to overanalyze it, those energies typically go away and they start to wake up. If they're not already awake, they start to wake up and remember. I've seen some amazing stories. I sit back and at, towards the end, usually, like I said, I work with people three or four months and towards the end, they're telling me things. And I literally want to dictate what they're saying because it is beautiful to see their inner self reunite with who they are as divinity and, and to see that they will no longer be 
or view the world the way they used to. And literally, I like, and again, I'm really careful about this, but they go out and start ministering the truth. They become the light, and people actually have people going to them, hmm. helping themselves out. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. So, so usually when people come to me, it's only for a very short period of time. I see, I help them to remember who they are as as light. Once they do, they're off to the races, and it's time for them to go and and uh, and preach the good word of the truth. And that's it. And, and it doesn't usually last that long. And people are really astonished because they expect to be with me from years. I'm like, no, nope, no, no, you've got you've got a purpose here, and you got to get going. So yeah, no need to spend. 10 years in a Buddhist monastery. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we might not have that much time anyway. Franco, yeah. tell folks how they can find your book, The Closet Spiritualist, and how they can find your website. Yeah, you know, you can just type in The Closet Spiritualist. you got to make sure you put the the in there, theclosetspiritualist.com. You'll get to my website. It's a very simple website. There you can reach out to me. You want to use the form that's there, or you can just email me at info at thecloss@spiritualist.com, and I'll respond to you. I'll definitely will, because if you're coming to me, it's because there's a reason. Bronco, thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show. This has been great. Thank you, Lee. I really, really enjoyed it. And I tell you this in the most sincere way, everything that came out today was a reflection of you and the people that were listening. I only say what people were coming here to talk about. And it's been a joy meeting you. It really has. I mean, we literally, I literally feel like we have known each other for many, many lifetimes. And I, I really look forward to continuing that beyond this show. I think that's a strong possibility. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate that. If listeners would like to hear the show again or any of our more than 490 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button, or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page. Just search NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. Listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.